0: The cycling tips nerd alert podcast i'm your host james huang it's the week of october 25th 2021 and we have yet another fantastic show in store for you today focusing this time on the right to repair movement and how it relates to the cycling industry to help us chat about all that today we have with us tech editor dave roman sydney hi dave hello uh we also have cycling tips editor-in-chief kaylee Fritz. hi kaylee hello and Right with me here at the Boulder Groupetto is Ace Pro Mechanic Zach Edwards. Hi Zach. Hello. Uh, Zach, you and Ruth recently bought a house up in Ned, the yep. mountain town up above <laughs> Boulder. I know we've talked we've about talked this about a lot before. A couple times, uh, but I know that particularly since Ruth has been home, you've been riding your bike into work a lot. Yeah. What are you do you do in winter hits? Well, like today, I rode. Well, I took the bus and
1: then I rode from downtown Boulder to the shop. And then tonight I'm going to ride from the shop
0: to the bus station and then take the bus back up the hill that's so convenient yeah it's almost like mass transit works or something i know weird so (laughs) strange so so weird
2: it's gonna be great it's gonna be great until it starts snowing in the winter time and the bus ends up sideways in the creek and (laughs) Zach
0: is (laughs) well i know if it if it snows that much it's just gonna be a ski day (laughs) that is true and the shop is closed that is the beauty of having your own shop like your own one-man shop you can kind of just be like yeah i'm not coming in today yeah i mean most of the yeah It'll be fine. <laughs> Not concerned. Dave, I want to hear more about this completely bonkers screwdriver that you just received.
3: Ooh, uh, i it was a Kickstarter. Uh, it wasn't cheap. And I think I backed it. Does it does say. <laughs> nothing. Nothing I back is. I you bought a cheap tool? I almost just, just bought no. an Audi no. bike kit, like a, a bike tool set from Audi, just to see how much of a junk it was. And then I looked at it and I'm like <laughs> I actually don't want to spend twenty five dollars on that. Um, <laughs> so anyway, yeah, it's a it's a screwdriver that I backed on Kickstarter in March last year, and they were uh, an entire year delayed on their delivery date. But it arrived. It arrives on my birthday of all days, and um, it basically yeah, it has a a brass weight that lets it uh gives it momentum so when you spin it the brass weight sort of keeps it spinning and then it has a ceramic bearing at the other end so you like you nest the ceramic bearing in your hand and then it sort of spins on that and uh it's very fancy and to be honest it's not the most ergonomic thing so, <laughs> so it screws <laughs> things know. in
1: worse than a normal screwdriver
3: yeah it's it's a, meant to be a precision screwdriver so it's like you know goes up to like you know one millimeter hex drive Um, so
0: essentially essentially what you bought was a very very expensive fidget spinner
3: oh yes yes that is exactly how i would describe it (laughs) which also comes with a lot of nice little bits that are easy to lose um so yeah it's it's very cool looking but also not at all um something i'll be reaching for on a regular basis
0: (laughs) What is this thing called, so that our listeners know not to buy one? Uh,
3: it's called the uh, Giaco Whatever Kinetic Driver, and it's made in Italy. Um, mm. Yeah, it's it's cool, but also not practical. So, sounds um, great.
2: Does yeah. anyone feel like Dave needs like a pet or or a <laughs> child or something?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Just sort of pull him back to earth.
0: A yeah, pretty bit. An, inter- an intervention. A, yeah. <laughs> pretty accurate I don't, I don't mean to put pet and child in the same you
2: know you know what i mean
3: yeah yeah i i do think a dog would probably uh offset a lot of these unnecessary purchases but i got sucked suck it in because the whole kickstarter campaign was you don't need this and i'm like don't tell me what to do and then I ordered it. it's it's almost like they targeted you specifically dave yeah yeah exactly me and like the everyone else that Yeah, got the funding up to like half a million euro of this thing. So
0: right. So basically, everyone else who follows you, basically everyone else who follows your Roman stuff Instagram account.
3: (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. So Mm. anyway,
0: Uh, yeah, you don't need this. Yeah. Speaking of Instagram accounts, Kaylee, tell our listeners about your new Instagram account that they should (laughs) that they should start following. (laughs) It's. I guess it's not
2: private. I didn't make it private. Uh, you know, (laughs) because I am a hashtag influencer. Uh, I have to make a new Instagram account for any major purchase that, that I, that I acquire. Uh, and so now I've got, I've got an Instagram account for my truck with a camper on it. I
0: don't what think I follow this.
2: Kermit the land yacht.
0: <laughs> Let's see.
2: <laughs> so land, yeah, land yacht is like an actual thing. I think Airstream makes it. And I don't have one of those. I have a four wheel camper camper that slides into the back of my, of my truck. Uh, Ooh. I don't actually know what I'm gonna do with it. Followers, I have 18 followers already. <laughs> I mean, much, I had, much influencing. <laughs> I had zero not that long ago. If you wanna, if you wanna follow, so I, basically, my main account at Kaylee Freds is just bike stuff. I like I've stopped doing any real anything personal on that a long time ago. It's just like all bikes because because I found out no bikes, no likes on that account. So. I have that. I have a top secret account, which is mostly pictures of my baby. Uh, and now I have this one for, I don't know, truck, truck modifications. Like, I, I, haven't, I haven't really figured out what I'm going to do with it yet. Other than my friend Chris and I decided this morning that we're just going to write a bunch of uh, like SEO truck modification blog posts that have affiliate links to Amazon and see if we can get some, you know, side hustle income. going on so i'll I'll use it for that maybe
0: i'm mostly surprised that you can manage to fit the entire truck in the frame of your of of your camera like how far away do you have to step for that (laughs) like
2: legitimately like 50 feet away yeah it's it's kind of ridiculous it it needs
3: multiple multiple photos stitched together
2: (laughs) (laughs) that's that's why they put that like panoramic mode on your phone James, mm -hmm. for my truck
0: oh oh, america (laughs) anyway anyway all right back on track here All right. So right to repair. For those of you listening to this podcast who haven't heard of right to repair, it's basically a movement born out of the electronics industry, or I should say the electronics consumers, uh, with the idea that consumers and third-party repair providers should not only be able to purchase small parts for things like your mobile phone or laptop or whatever, but also that you should have access to things like diagnostic information, proprietary tools, and service manuals. Uh, and also be able to repair them without having to send the thing to the manufacturer, either either yourself or you know taking to a repair shop, that sort of thing. And there's obviously a fair bit of pushback on this from the supplier side, because they want you to buy new stuff, not fix your old stuff. But given how we already have that sort of thing for a lot of other common items like appliances and automobiles, the idea certainly holds merit. It's a little bit of a different story when it comes to the bike industry, we're gonna debate that in a little bit. Um, but one company that is really trying to change a lot of that is uh, Wolftooth Components out of Minnesota. I recently spoke to one of the company co-founders, Brendan Moore. So let's, before we get into our discussion here, let's take a listen to that conversation and then we'll chat about it on the other side. As you can imagine, I get an awful lot of press releases in my inbox. Um, and this one showed up and I was looking at it and like, it was the, the right to repair thing right in the, right in the tagline or the subject right there. And it's something I had been thinking about quite a lot already. And Dave and I and Zach in particular, it, this is something that's all pretty near and dear to our hearts as current or past bike shop mechanics, that sort of thing. Um, so I was really excited to see that, that, that Wolf Tooth is really pretty, you know, diving head first, or I guess really pretty deeply immersed in that whole idea, um, when did you all start doing
4: this? I wouldn't say there's an exact time when we started. It just, uh, since we've been designing products, it always seemed like the thing you do is you offer people the replacement parts. Um, you know, as as we took customer input um, on designs and as we talked to customers, and, you know, they would contact us with a, I crashed and this thing happened. Um, we would always just, Help them out. I mean, it was kind of like the company ethos, like, well, let's keep them running. Um, but then what we started to realize is, if we just make the product available to customers, they'll often find it, search it out, find it, and just order it themselves, which saved us, you know, a little time on the back end as far as like writing up custom invoices and all that. And so, in the past probably three years, we've just made it de facto when we launch a product, if it's made up of parts, we offer all the parts uh, down to down to a little fastener and sometimes these fasteners are like off the shelf fasteners and we'll just list what they are. So if you want to go to your hardware store and buy the M M four by twelve millimeter bolt that it holds your remote together, you can do that. Or if you want to buy it from us for a dollar and pay for shipping, we'll do that too. Uh but it just it just seemed like, you know, we grew up and have always wrenched and tooled on our own bikes. And it was always frustrating when you couldn't, you know, you just needed this one little thing to make it work. And couldn't get it, so. right? So
0: it, I, I guess you kind of touched on this a little bit right now, but clearly at some point internally there was some some motivation to to make that happen. Like you said, um, like from the beginning, it always just seemed natural that you should offer the parts to to fix this stuff. Um, but that's still unusual in this industry. I feel like. So why was it why was it important for Wolf Tooth to do that? Because like, you didn't have to do it, obviously.
4: No, no, it's uh it's more lucrative to sell somebody uh a new remote dropper lever than sell them a $5 piece that makes their remote work again. But uh you know it's it was more about the customer experience and our personal experiences uh, like some of the ones you and I had talked about uh previous to this like just having that that thing that one part to get your bike back running rather than have to throw something in the garbage. Um, you know and I think obviously it's a it's a hot button issue for the world right now this uh you know sustainability and all that but think about all the trash generated over time with with all these parts we're throwing away when it's maybe you just need a new you know bushing or something like that or a clutch or whatever you know it is uh it's just something we just decided it was important to us to to make sure that our customer experience is good and they can keep the stuff running as long as as long as possible as long as the you know the design can keep you know there are limitations if you smash something to pieces uh <laughs> you can't always fix it but uh, in many cases it's just one or two little pieces
0: yeah i mean i don't think anyone has i shouldn't say i don't think anyone but i'm sure generally speaking people have pretty reasonable expectations for what can and can't be fixed and you know what sort of little parts mm-hmm. are available mm-hmm. um but speaking of making all this stuff available i mean Wolftooth obviously has an advantage, I guess, as would any company that actually manufactures its own stuff in that you manufacture your own stuff. Um, so is, is that really the key to making all this possible? Like if you were, if you were, say, if the design and assembly of all the stuff that you make were still the same, but all of the individual pieces were coming from various vendors, either domestically or internationally, that sort of thing. Would you still be able to do this?
4: Uh, it would be a lot more difficult. So, say you had a, a design for some trinket, some some part that you, that you made, um, and you ordered that part number from, say, you know, Taiwan or Europe, or wherever you ordered that part part number from. That comes in as assembly, a completed assembly. So, ordering the spare parts would obviously be ordering more stuff than than you need, or more stuff than you're actually selling that you probably have a PO for. Versus us, we're ordering all all the individual parts so you can walk out to our floor and just find all the individual parts. So to your point, we're not ordering assemblies from anybody. We're ordering individual parts so they're around. And because they're around, it makes it easier for us to sell them. Because um, all we got to do is really create a pick face and a part number and it can ship. Is
0: it the sort of thing that you do have to manufacture more of these little bits ahead of time? Or is it the sort of thing where... I mean, I think people have this idea that with CNC machining, you can sort of just push a button and it spits out a part. But there's a lot of tooling involved. There's a lot of setup and, and stuff yeah. involved. Um, so, so do you just have to kind of make more of certain things, just in anticipation that you'll that you'll need them as spares, or how does that all work?
4: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have an inventory system that just kind of monitors those things. So, yeah, if we're making, you know, if we want to make a thousand of an assembly, we'll make eleven 1, hundred of a of each little piece. And then, you know, if some of those sell as individual pieces, great. If not, we'll make another hundred of the assemblies. Um, And because, again, you know, CNC machining is not as simple as pressing a button and it poops out a little part, uh, we do have to, you know, do some schedule planning around that. But long and short of it is, yes, we absolutely make and order extra parts for service. Um, We also partner with, you know, one of the things that's that's not often talked about as far as sustainability is the amount of shipping and the amount of like especially overseas shipping is super energy intensive and uh, we've partnered with distributors around the world um, and basically we send them free parts for service because you know if I get a customer in in Asia that has a a broken broken chain ring bolt whether they didn't tighten it or whether it's our fault or their fault doesn't really matter. Uh, But shipping them one chain ring bolt, you know, is costs a lot of money, but it also costs a lot of energy. It's cheaper. If I just, we basically send tackle boxes of spare parts, to various places around the world at no charge. And then we let the distributors send them on at no charge. And that's kind of, you know, hopefully that distributor gains some business and we have a happy customer Um, independent of like, if you get a customer in in europe they may have ordered it not from that distributor they may have ordered it across the border from another place in europe but um, we kind of set up service centers if you will just to ease both the time it takes to get the replacement part and the environmental concerns with shipping like again one chain ring bolt and the piece of plastic bubble mailer that has to go on a plane and all that
0: i I think it's awesome that you're doing all that and i wish more companies would do that in general Uh, i do think that for sure it does garner a lot of customer loyalty. I mean people, regardless, of course, people want a deal, they want to spend less on stuff, whatever, but I feel like more than anything, people mostly just kind of want to feel like they're taken care of um that they they're kind of considered more than just kind of the initial take my money sort of thing um so that's always really good to hear yeah, uh, but it's so, far-
4: like so one interesting thing is you can. <laughs> I think we've all been there when like your car breaks or whatever thing you have, your dishwasher breaks or whatever. And you're kind of like furious in the moment, right? You're like, oh, this thing broke. And darn it, I don't have time to fix this. I just don't want to deal with it. And you can, you know, usually the the customer, not usually, often the customers will come in, you know, kind of a little upset because the thing broke and whether it's their fault or not, they might be upset at themselves. They might be upset at us. But you'd be amazed how quickly the conversation turns from being frustrated or upset to being like, Oh, great. Thanks. We, you know, just like you said, and, uh, it's not, it's not that much effort, you know, again, when you're set up with a business model like ours to just do that.
0: Right. Because the expectation these days is that things are disposable and that when something breaks, you kind of just have to throw it away and get a new one. And more often than not, this thing that's broken is probably quite expensive.
4: That's exactly right.
0: Um, When you are designing all these parts, do you take into account um, the ability to to repair these items or is it sort of inherent to just the style of manufacturing that you do with all that with with so much CNC machining?
4: Uh, No, we definitely take that into account. Um, We're always looking at even like I said, when we earlier when we do product launches, we look at what replacement parts we should offer. I mean, sometimes in some cases, like everything like you can literally build the thing off the replacement parts page it won't be as cheap but you can build the whole assembly um but yeah we're constantly looking at that we're also you know looking at uh breakage points for example so um in an event of a crash sometimes things break uh i think we can all accept that most of us can accept that maybe not everybody <laughs> uh but but when something breaks can you make that thing that breaks easily replaceable rather than have it some internal part or some part that's you know uh, somehow fastened in a way that a, that a normal uh, home mechanic can't fix. So we're always looking at that as well as if this thing breaks, how is it going to break? How can we make that a replaceable part um, in a reasonable way for a customer?
0: Are there instances where when you've designed a part that you have identified that you could have made it, lighter stiffer whatever by making it less serviceable like, are there yeah, other yeah. ways
4: because it's more parts james like so for example right. we you know the the remotes uh have this breakaway axle which has been you know some people get pretty frustrated when it breaks away uh it's a five dollar replacement part um and so you know there, there was some there has been frustration over time from various outlets or people that well, my other <laughs> Dropper lever doesn't break. And it's like, well, you did crash and you did hit it. And there's this $5 part. Sometimes if the customer's really upset, we'll send it for free. Uh there's this $5 part that fixes your remote versus like if you would have done that to another part, uh remote, whatever, uh, it's possible that thing would be toast. You'd be throwing the whole thing away. And so there's this fine line though, like. You know, the sometimes you'll hear, well, I've 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 hit my other one fifty times and it's never blown apart, and this one blew apart on the first crash. It's <laughs> like, yeah. So you're balancing that like design robustness sometimes with the ability to replace, repair, um, and then also to your point um, regarding cost, it's way cheaper to make things out of fewer parts, almost always. Uh, and when you make things repairable, um, sometimes they need to be made about out of more parts. You know, something that can be machined as one or one piece might need to be two or three pieces uh or something like that so uh, definitely it's you can't just you don't stumble in the into the ability to repair stuff
0: have you gotten any feedback from from any customers who have said have told you explicitly that they that they prefer your stuff specifically because it is repairable
4: yeah yeah we get that often again that conversations go from this thing broken I, I you know i'm i'm upset and then you're just like oh don't worry just send us a picture oh yeah that part's a, a dollar and they're like no or well again a lot of times we'll be like hey that bolt is just an off-the-shelf bolt just go to your local hardware store and buy it. they're in the little containers they can be 30 cents just buy it whatever will make the customer happiest and get them back riding the fastest
0: i mean it almost seems like it, it, Wolf Tooth is sort of playing a part in sort of, just, kind of just like building up this idea that things should be repairable, that things should not be disposable, that like all these things are possible. Because I I do think that for so many items now, it has just become so difficult to repair things or to find small parts that people are just conditioned to just throwing things away. Have 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 you run into any instances where? You've heard from a customer said like, you know, this thing broke. They bought a new one. They threw the old one away. Like, did they find out later that it was repairable? And they were kind of like, oh, oops. Well, I guess I know better next time.
4: Yeah, well, we've actually had customers come to us with old assemblies and be like, hey, I want to get this new one. And, um, you know, my other one broke. and We'll be like, it broke. What do you mean? Can you just send us some pictures why it broke, how it broke? And, there, and then a lot of times it's like, well, you just need this T-nut you just need this again bolt or whatever it is they're like oh well i'm gonna buy a new one and put this one on my old bike so we end up you know because we please them they they now have two of the things
0: <laughs> right right uh, which is
4: good which is good for everybody
0: cool um i guess speaking of older parts one thing that is always a little bit tricky even for companies that do want to be able to continue to produce small parts and have that stuff available is how do you handle things that are either quite a bit older or are discontinued or something like that? Like, would you, you know, say earlier you said that you might make 1100 of something instead of making just a thousand. So you have spares on hand, but when that, when that supply of spares is exhausted and that product is no longer in production and hadn't been for a while, what do you do then?
4: That's a, that's a delicate balance. You know, we don't have like a set time where it's like, we're going to maintain this for five years or any of that. Um, it is within reason. We keep things in stock for a period of probably two to three years after they sunset. But there aren't a whole lot. We're not that old of a company where we have a ton of stuff like that. We we are doing things like, uh, you remember the old uh, uh, M988 XTR crank sets? They use like an 88 BCD. Yeah. Beautiful crank set. Amazing mm-hmm. crank set. Unfortunately, it doesn't work with boost bikes. Doesn't fit almost any modern bike. And so they're kind of being like, you know, whereas people for years were re- reusing those cranks because they're bomber and that, you know, they look really nice. Well, now people aren't able to use them as much on, on new bikes. And so like that one, for example, we went from carrying like, uh, four different chainring sizes; We're just maintaining one at this point. So if somebody has that, we'll be able to keep them running. Maybe not the ideal size, but, um, and that's just simply sales rates don't justify stocking all the sizes. But we're we're maintaining the one size. We're not discontinuing the one size. So that's the kind of thing we'll do, where we'll just like try and find a solution for the customer that maybe it's not as perfect as it once was, but at least at least they can keep running.
0: Right, right. I mean, I, I don't. Again, I don't think anyone. Well, most people, I think, don't have unreasonable expectations for how long things will be supported. Uh, but it is good to hear that you are at least you know, that you keep that in mind in general, as opposed to just not keeping spares on hand at all after something is discontinued. What do you think it would take to kind of have this sort of mentality incorporated into more companies, especially bigger ones? Because again, with with a company of your size, comparatively speaking, you're tiny compared to Shimano or SRAM or whoever. Um, and even... For you, you know how much of a logistical headache it can be. Um, is that sort of thing, in your opinion, even possible at a much bigger company?
4: I think it is. Um, I think one of the one of the advantages we have is we have a direct to consumer channel. So, like, we have a web store where you can buy all the stuff, like, right on the web store. Um, our dealers and distributors have access to the same stuff, by the way. But, like, just being able to search and find it for a consumer find the spare part uh, on the site and know that it's sold separately and then they can go into their shop and buy it uh is useful um the bigger companies they they do certainly have service documents with part numbers but it's not always apparent like how do i buy that that part uh sometimes google searching will get you there uh for sure but um i think one of the challenges is how they make the consumer aware that they sell those parts it might be the situation where the consumer just assumes they can't get the part. And so they don't try that hard. So, um, and then also, you know, our, our, uh, our customer service team, we're small enough where our customer service team uh, still knows every product we make backward forwards and upside down. And so they're able to immediately help somebody versus the bigger, the bigger you are as a company, the more difficult it is to have that that point contact or that customer contact know everything. I mean, Theres some complex assemblies out there, especially when you get into suspension and all that and it's like it'd be difficult to have somebody to know every spare part on the phone at the exact time when the customer needs the help so some of it's just due to our size and our ability to you know we're not at the scale they are so i
0: right right, but I guess looking at a couple of non bike related products that i've I've dealt with um like I, I'm not a coffee drinker personally, but my wife certainly is. And, you know, she grinds her own coffee. And, um, when we were looking for a nice coffee, coffee grinder, we were talking to a friend of ours who runs a, a local roaster called the the coffee ride. And he recommended these, these grinders from this company Baratza, uh, partially because they're really good, but also specifically because they offer parts much like you do. Uh, they have exploded mm-hmm, diagrams. Mm-hmm. And you can order individual parts off of the web store and stuff like that. And the grinders aren't cheap. But if a motor dies or like the the blades get dull or whatever, you can order all those things individually, which came in handy because mm-hmm. her motor did eventually die after daily use of however many years. And I was able to buy a motor and you know, use their instructions and take it apart and put it all back together. And then we didn't have to buy new grinders. Great. Um, but even stuff like everyday appliances, I can't remember the name of the website. I wish I could remember it off the top of my head. But anytime I've needed a part for a dishwasher or washing machine or whatever, um, there's this this website that I that I've used that has exploded diagrams for virtually every wow. home appliance ever made, and everything is linked. It's it's amazing, and it, it has links to its own part number, uh, like its own in-store part number, and then manufacturer part number, pricing. Like it, I think they, they also have some some video tutorials on how to fix stuff. It is an absolutely incredible operation, and as much as I'm amazed that a smaller company can offer that sort of thing, the fact that this other third party repair service parts parts dealer can have that level of intricacy as far as you know having the exploded diagrams for every assembly and on, on all your all your everyday home appliances. It does seem to me that it at least should be possible. It just needs to I guess it just requires a lot more work to make it happen, right?
4: Yeah. I think I mean the industry you're talking about is has always had service people uh, fixing stuff, and they've always had they've had access. Maybe not the end consumer, they've had access to replacement parts. So, um, getting that maybe the the stuff that shops have access to, bike shops, for example, have access to more to the public. Maybe that would improve it. That's more akin to the model you're talking about with just availability. Um, but it would take, uh, yeah, it would take a shift, like you said, in the way the way things are sold. I think, and, uh, presented now in the I mean, industry
0: because coming back to that appliance model. If I have a $500 dishwasher, for example, and I need a, a single seal, I can buy that seal for like 20 bucks. And a lot of times someone will pay someone to come and install that and order the part and whatever. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to do it myself, but we are now looking at a lot of bicycle components where you can have a rear derailleur that costs $350, $400 that, in theory, it's 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 really not that different from the dishwasher in terms of the cost and in terms of you know, whether or not you can fix it, or well, in, in terms of in terms of how complex it is. But whereas I can buy that individual part from my dishwasher, and a lot of people are willing to pay someone to install that, we seem to have this attitude where this expensive part is just ah, oh, it's broken, it's disposable, I have to just go get a new one, and it almost just seems like there's a change in attitude that's
4: required. I think I think you're probably right about that i mean it's uh you know again back to what we do we just kind of go there from the start and just say we we know this thing is going to be ridden and abused hopefully and hopefully a lot of fun is had while that's happening but it's gonna break someday like probably it's gonna break um and that's that's okay we just want to make sure we keep it running i mean things things do wear out too it's the nature but as long as you can keep is if you can keep it running as long as the design permits and the materials permit, I mean, that's, that's the ultimate goal.
0: Cool. Well, again, thanks to you all for doing that. And hopefully we can see some more of this in the future from other companies, but in the meantime, again, thanks again for making that happen. And thanks for making the time.
4: Yeah, absolutely. We got some stuff coming that uh, is going to fall in this vein uh, here next year. That's uh, I think will knock people's socks off, so to speak, but at least be really exciting for our company. And I think a lot of the a lot of the people in the industry, as far as how we're uh, doing some uh, more complex um, products with this uh, in mind, where we see uh, a lot of waste or a lot of uh, lack of repairability, so.
0: Hmm, interesting, all right, looking forward to see it. Yep. Cool, thanks again, Brandon. Thanks, James. Zach, I want to start with you first on this because while the rest of us have worked in shops as shop mechanics, you're the only one who is actually still getting paid to work on bikes. That is correct. (laughs) How often do you have to throw something away or how often are you, are you kind of stuck because there is a small part that you need that is just not made available to you? I mean, lately as in the last
1: what, 18 months or something probably a lot more trying to fix things because parts aren't actually available. Um, but, I mean, I don't know. Like, I'm trying to think. Zach is looking around at the shop I'm right now. I'm trying to think, like, what is a common thing.
2: Like, shifter parts.
1: Like sh- Well, yeah, shifters you can't. No one makes shifters that are rebuildable. Even yeah, Yolo. Well, yeah, not even anymore, though. You have to buy a whole new lever body, and then you just move the brake lever blade over. Yeah, since ten, since I think 10-speed was the last repairable. Yeah. I mean, otherwise, repairable stuff, it's like you get new pulleys or I don't even know. And things are repairable to a point. To a point, yeah, usually. But, like, yeah, if you, like, one of the main parallelogram links in a derailleur breaks, like, you have to get a new derailleur, I guess. Usually repair stuff, I would say, is less trained, more, like, hubs and stuff like that where it's things are serviceable and you can pull them apart easily. Um, but like shifters and trailers and stuff for their little tiny springs wound up, then things are riveted together less so.
0: But if they were not riveted together, if you could take them apart and if you could get individual parts, would you and would people pay for them? Because one of the things that uh, at the tail end of this interview that I did with Brendan, I was talking about this appliance parts, uh, uh, retailer website thing and I couldn't remember the name of it at the time, but after we finished recording, I remembered it's called PartSelect.com. Um, and it's it's a service that I've used a bunch of times. And they have seemingly, well, they have exploded diagrams and individual part lists for what seems to be every single appliance ever made. Um, so I've used it to buy a whole bunch of replacement parts for like washers and dryers and dishwashers and stuff like that. And a lot of these appliances aren't necessarily crazy expensive. I mean, I was buying parts for like an old Maytag dryer that, I mean, it probably only cost like three or 400 bucks back in the day. But one of the reasons why I was thinking about this a lot is because I recently had issues with two rear Um uh, One of them has a pulley cage clutch that's not serviceable. That's just worn out. Um, can't do anything about that. And that part's, it's, it's not serviceable and they don't make the part available for it anyway. And then the other one, I, I cracked a piece of it on a rock uh, but the rest of the derailleur is completely fine, but I also can't get that part either. And both of those derailleurs are quite expensive, and it's just kind of a bummer that I can't fix them and make them work again when the rest of it's fine. So that
1: reminds me, this was never something that they sold, but SRAM, I'm thinking like XO like 9 speed generation, when there was all the cool CNC machined derailleurs. Those derailleurs... Had every, removable pins. Yeah, everything was held together by C-Clip. So like, let's say you had two broken derailleurs that were broken in different ways. You could take them apart and combine them into one functional trailer, um, which was always really cool, which would maybe help you in the situation. But,
0: but that's, like, that's like how a lot of bike shop mechanics back in the day ended up with those derailers to begin with. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, we, like I would say Shimano
1: they have on their dealer site. It's pretty nice that you can, whatever the part is, whether it's a wheel or let's say, yeah, we'll just use a wheel, for example. You click on that wheel like you would purchase the entire wheel, but you can scroll down and then there's basically an exploded view of of that entire wheel and hub and everything, and then a list of parts that you can click on and purchase individual parts, whether it's you need a special spoke or a hub seal or free hub body or whatever. Like, it is all right there, but things are only replaceable or rebuildable to a certain... Yeah. Certain degree, I would say, like that
3: freehub body you just mentioned. You can replace the freehub body, but you can't service the freehub body officially. Yeah. with Shimano they don't yeah. offer well, the you, parts. Yeah,
1: yeah, they used to sell a tool for a Shimano freehub body, and I have rebuilt a couple, and I would yeah. not recommend it. <laughs> no, um,
3: but yeah, it's like there's there's an and there's a lot of examples in that with Shimano, which is they let you keep the bike running, but it's not quite like right to repair level of things. You know, right to repair yeah. level sort of suggesting that you know you're able to replace the battery in your iPhone um without voiding the warranty whereas shimano for example it's like there's no chance of you opening up a di2 shifter and finding the replacement parts for that it's just you know you're gonna have to like james is talking about replacing parts in an old
1: washing machine like let's say using shimano for example like if you have a 7800 derailleur and you need a new whatever it is for it like those parts aren't going to be still available because they don't support Company the not just Shimano but the entire bicycle industry doesn't support parts that are over like four years old.
3: Yeah, I'd say Campagnolo in my experience has been pretty good in that regard. Like well, yeah. you can still find they're, like eight speed always, shifter parts, but they're always an outlier yeah. for sure. Um, but yeah, suddenly for the other brands, I think it's like yeah, five to eight years is sort of the rough timeline that they yeah. And they all of the electronic
1: for. stuff, all the electronic stuff is even even worse. I would say yeah, like they like you look at a ETap derailleur and there are a lot of parts that should be replaceable, but they just don't sell. Like the, the part that holds the, the battery on is a plastic clip thing. And if that breaks, it's just a couple of screws that hold that part on, but you have to get an entire new rear derailleur.
0: <laughs> so, with the Shimano thing, I, I do like that they make a lot of the parts available and they have those exploded diagrams made available to, on the dealer site. But you can still access the exploded, you can't purchase them, but you
1: can access all of the exploded files and stuff on there's a, it's called si.shimano.com. Mm-hmm. And it's every tech document for every Shimano product ever.
0: So, how often does someone come in and say, I, I broke my X Shimano thing and I would like to order this tiny little part and can you fix this thing?
1: I mean, here,
0: not so much. Most people that come to me, like,
1: most people that come in, they're just like, this is broken, I crashed or it stopped working or whatever. They're just like, just fix it. And they kind of more trust me to do whatever makes the most sense, whether it's trying to get the small replacement parts or just get a whole new derailleur. I wouldn't say, most consumers aren't looking into those tech docs and finding the exact part number that they need.
3: Yeah, I wrote a column about this years and years ago, which is like, don't assume that the internet has the all all the answers for you. And you know, there's still a place for the local bike shop. Um, you know, if if there's a part that you can't find, don't assume that it doesn't exist just because you can't find it on your favorite online retailer. Because online and retailers bike shops, too. Yeah, well, yeah, they like like I do, and I know a lot of other shops like let's say someone
1: breaks a derailleur and you're replacing the derailleur, like most bike shops are going to salvage any still usable parts off of that derailleur and just there's a drawer in every bike shop that yeah. has used random bits. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
3: yeah. but also like their, their access to to the spare parts, right? Like the online retailers have no interest in, in stocking a part that maybe, you know, they might sell once in a year. They're going to go with the mainstream stuff that has actual turnover. Um, so yeah, you know, if you can't find it on your favorite online retailer, just... Don't immediately assume that that part doesn't exist. It might actually just be something that your your local physical brick and mortar shop has to order in for you. So,
0: Zach, would you say that in the last year and a half or so, just because people have not been able to buy new replacement stuff as they would normally be able to, has there been more interest from people who want their stuff repaired instead of getting when they would normally be getting new stuff?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say like there's been a lot of well, I was going to get a new bike, and then COVID happened, and then there aren't any bikes to buy, and there aren't going to be any bikes to buy, really, for another year plus. So, like, let's do what we can for the most most efficient use of money to keep, keep this bike rolling. Like, I would say there's a lot of that going on.
0: But have, have people's attitudes changed at all, in your opinion, or do you think that they are going to just kind of revert back to their old ways once stuff becomes eventually available again in, like, 2025 or whatever? <laughs> right. yeah. I mean...
1: I don't know. I'd like to hope that people want things repaired, but I think also, particularly here in Boulder, people want like cool new stuff.
2: Yeah, I think some of it comes down to Zach's clientele.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Not, yeah. not the average bike shop. You're not the average bike <laughs> it's, shop.
3: No. It's that, but it's also, I think the person, the consumer that is really keen on the, the right to repair stuff is generally pretty hands-on as well um so you know they might not ever be going into a shop like probably working on their own stuff at home yeah exactly they might be tinkering away and willing to spend the three hours to rebuild one of these parts that a shop would you know it wouldn't be um feasible from a from a pricing point of view to have someone else do it
1: yeah i mean there are totally a lot of shops that are like well we could do that but the amount of whether it's the amount of time it takes or the amount of space that that project takes up or whatever they're like that just financially doesn't make sense for us so we're not going to do that
0: Okay, so it doesn't make make sense for a lot of retail outlets to stock these parts, which is fine, which is why Shimano and other companies perhaps have these exploded diagrams where you can order those replacement parts directly from them. But I guess what I'm wondering is, how often do you have customers, and again, keeping in mind that this Boulder Groupetto is not a typical shop, um, but how often do you have customers who, even if it's not necessarily the financially Kind of like most expedient thing to do. But how often do you have someone who just really just wants their existing stuff fixed just for the just out of principle?
1: Um, yeah. I mean, I would say a fair number of people for sure. I mean, it, yeah. Like, like you said, this isn't your traditional bike shop. Most people that come in, I was like, I was saying a bit ago, they're like, this is broken. Fix it. Like, like. Do, do what makes sense. And then that's what up to me, whether I'm like, okay, it makes sense to try and repair this or straighten it out or bend like, or just replace it. Like most people. They come in here aren't necessarily coming in and being like, this is broken or it's something's worn out. I want you to rebuild it. They're just, it needs fixed to what you think makes
3: sense. (laughs) Not working, make it work. Yeah, totally. Yeah. In my experience, there absolutely are customers out there that like refuse for things to end up in, in rubbish. Like that, you know, they're willing to spend the money to keep something, you know, to keep a product running, even when it doesn't make financial sense to do so. But it's not the norm, like they're kind of the minority from what i from what I recall and from what I've seen, um yeah, and I, I mean, love that I was... kind of custom I, I I love that that idea that you know it's like, why should I throw away this bike when I can you know give it a new life, and yes, I could buy a new one, but I'm thinking back to like when I worked in more normal shops, like there are definitely
1: customers that are like whether it's an older bike that they're sentimental about or they don't necessarily want to put a bunch of money into it or whatever, that that's very much like, this is how much money I want to put into it. So, and I don't want to buy new stuff. I want to make this work as best as we can make it work, even if it's not perfect, but like, let's fix it as, as it is. But I wouldn't say that's necessarily people being like, I don't want to be replacing disposable parts. That's more of a, usually a
0: financial thing, I would say. So let's say Mikey, Mike better. Yep. Our social media editor. Um, we've all known at least amongst us, that he rode an original Shimano Ace Di2 group set yep. into the ground. Yep. Pretty much literally in many cases. Yes. Um, and I, I, I haven't talked to Shimano about this, but are those parts still available? Like if he wanted to no, keep that running, could you even get any? No, definitely not. Because it's been what, 12 I mean, years, I remember 13 like, years? No
3: I'm
0: more, trying, it's been like, like 15 actually.
1: I mean, it's got to be like eight or so years ago. Like, I don't know, whenever... Whenever YouTube stuff started, and like you could barely even buy wiring kits for that stuff, two years after they they came out with the new version, like and if yeah, you, there's no way you could get that stuff running nowadays.
0: So how do you break it to someone when whether it for whatever reason they have some small thing that's just no longer supported and they have to just replace a whole bunch of stuff? I mean, how does that conversation I mean, go? Lay out the facts, so you're not
1: gonna try and like, I don't know, like yeah. This is the bike industry we don't support parts for this long and this product is X amount of years old and it sucks but unfortunately that's what it is or or you say, okay, we can't actually fix this but and we can't buy parts that are new from Shimano, but like hey let's let me help you try and find whatever the part you need is on eBay or somewhere to try and replace like to try and help the customer still to get it rolling if they don't want to just buy a whole new group set I guess but that's not a great solution because then you're just buying stuff off eBay but it like gets the bike rolling. It gets the bike rolling.
0: So I know this is something that I feel like we've talked about before, <clears throat> and I realize, especially after our old, uh, after our previous episode, I think there are a lot of listeners who are just kind of like, "Wow, the cycling tips people just kind of complain about stuff a lot." Um, but just in in an effort to make things better, if we already have a situation where there's a at least kind of decent amount of small parts available, maybe not fantastic. Um, What would you suggest the industry should do to make the situation better?
1: I mean, I think supporting more than one generation older product would be good. And then actually having those small spare parts in stock and available. Like that's, like, let's use Shimano, for example, like on that exploded view, let's say half the time they don't have the part that you want in stock. And then you're just like, okay, well, there goes that idea of trying to replace that.
3: I also think that there's a lot of rooms, like Shimano uh, si.shimano is, isn't an extremely good example of a great resource, it's it's a very, you know, there's a lot of information there, and it's relatively easy to find, um, you know, you, you can sort of narrow down by your category, or by the group set you have, or, or by the product number, there's a lot of ways to find what you're looking for. And I think uh, basically everyone else is doing it wrong. <laughs> so um, like, yeah, for example, like DT Swiss, for example, their their website actually used to have quite good navigation. But recently, like if you it's try to really figure out... really difficult to find stuff. Yeah. If you try to figure out what like end cap you need for like a, a 240 hub from 10 years ago, it's actually really difficult. And I actually used to do tech support for that company. And I still can't figure out how to like use their new <laughs> yeah. documents. They have like a big chart and it doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah. Yeah, so it's just like yeah, there's there's some great examples, and then there's some other examples who you know show that it's it's harder than it needs to be, and I think some of these companies could have you know better navigation, and that would go a long long way to making this uh, an easier and um, yeah m- more common practice of repair.
1: Or I would say too, or this is more less component manufacturer, but more more the bike manufacturer side of things. A lot of companies have a lot of really good tech docs. But they're only available to the actual dealer, um, so I think it, yeah, Mavic or like even Specialized or Trek or whoever, like you want to find a product manual for like a Speed Concept, like or something. There's like it's really difficult to find if you're not a dealer.
3: Yeah, yeah, it sucks to have to try find a bootleg version of, <laughs> of a yeah, tech yeah, manual. right, exactly. You're having to
1: find something that some someone's uploaded on the internet themselves rather than through. Like some companies are really like Cervelo is really good at this. You go. Yeah, like a whole manual section and you basically just like, this is the generation of whatever P five that I want. And it'll pull up the entire, entire manual for the whole bike. Um, yeah. Which that's something that I run into a lot, not being, not being a, a dealer to any bike company. So like, yeah, whether it's trying to find a small part or just uh, instructions on how to do something, um, I can reach out, like I have enough contacts and I know people, at other shops in town that usually it's not an issue, but, it would just be nice if I could just pull up X company's website and they have a tech section that's actually has tech in it, not just like some marketing BS of tech stuff.
0: So one thing I worry about with one of the things that we talked about in a previous episode is how a lot of companies are starting to, starting to go more vertical in the sense that they are starting to do a lot more in terms of owning their own retail spaces. And this is probably a little ways off, but it does seem plausible that some of these companies will kind of just go more insular in, in, in the sense that they, they're they going to start keeping all of that information to themselves and limiting it to their own dealer network, right? Totally. But yeah,
1: I mean, like at least here in Boulder, I would say like that's why I'm not able to exist because there are shops that that like say the Trek store or the specialized dealer or whatever and maybe to like a nice real cyclist, their service isn't up to par of what this customer wants. So that's why I'm able to do what I do. And like, I'm, yeah, it is how it is, but it's just interesting. Mm. Yeah.
3: Certainly, like, certainly with the Trek and and specialized dealers, my experience is like what Zach was saying the manuals are hidden. So, like, they've got exclusive access to how to service these bikes. You know, these bikes have like intricate cable routing and processes and stuff, but then the parts you can't order unless you're a dealer. So, if you need like a, a headset ring for your Tarmac SL7, you need to be a specialized dealer to get your hands on it. You can't buy it online. You have to be a physical dealer of specialized. Um, so yeah, it's certainly, they, they are certainly creating these barriers that sort of pr- protect their dealers, but also at the same time kind of go against the right to repair movement. Not necessarily
1: for buying replacement parts
3: or stuff, anything
1: like that, but SRAM has been really good. They've kind of redid their entire service section of the website. So basically you can, they have a search tab and you can basically put the serial number of whatever the product is, whether it's a trailer or brakes or a hub or whatever, and then it will... You up, yeah. Finds that serial number and tell you exactly what the product is, what the year is, and then we'll have links to, yeah, service manuals, user manuals, and YouTube videos and all of that, which is pretty cool.
0: and I guess Fox is pretty good about that too, with that whole four-digit yeah, Fox ID exactly. thing that they yeah. have. Yeah, that's amazing. you can amazing. plug that in, yeah. You can plug that in, and then on the website, it'll tell you everything about that fork, what the initial setup was, the shim stack arrangement. It'll it'll tell you
1: everything, which I would like to see that more for bikes, like whether it's for servicing or let's say a mountain bike, like you punch in a serial number and it pulls up the information. It's like, here's your suggested suspension or like, here's um, like whatever spare parts list or whatever would be nice if you did. Rather than having to f- scroll through like a bike archive, you're trying to find a five-year-old bike and you just put the serial number in. That would be,
3: that would be very cool. nice. And yeah, find out the original spec and then, yeah. Yeah. Cause that exists yeah. just not
1: to end consumers or anyone.
0: Right. And that sort of thing does already exist. And we talked about this before. That sort of thing definitely does exist in the automotive industry. Yeah. You go to like O'Reilly auto parts or whatever auto zone and you plug in your car's VIN or just the year and model and it'll, it'll pull up everything. It yeah. knows everything that was in that car originally.
1: Yeah. I think more just like, yeah, standardization across the board would be nice. Just like this is the expectation and what, what information you'll be able to find easily.
0: Well, fingers crossed that gets a little bit better because as you said zach there are certainly a lot more people and certainly a lot more attention being paid right now on fixing your old stuff as opposed to buying new stuff because there is no new stuff available right. to be, to be <laughs> yep. purchased right now just before this james was talking about well he i
1: think he mentioned the podcast he has a broken derailleur. and just just for uh laughter i looked on on the dealer site what the eta on his derailleur was it was august of next year
0: Wow. Yeah, my wife's derailleur, granted, and I and, and I did like I did thankfully find a way around this, um, but it was not easy to do. You gave her one of your derailleurs, like a good husband. I did husband? not. I did not do that. I, fa- <laughs> I found I found a derailleur. Well, I didn't have one, but um, I found a derailleur that was compatible off of I can't remember what online retailer I found, and I just I found one somewhere, and it was a reputable retailer that I knew, so I just bought it, and it's supposed to be here today, so I can hopefully get her bike back up and running. It wasn't the fake one
2: that we posted a story about yesterday <laughs> or a Monday?
0: Oh, no. Is that why it was so cheap? <laughs> Did you buy that derailleur for $24? Uh, well, wait, but, but are you saying it was a bad idea? It, that, well, I guess it was kind of odd that they requested my bank info and my social security number. <laughs> Your mother's maiden name. Oh, crap. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe her bike's not going to be up and running. Bummer. Anyway, all right. I feel like
2: I feel, I feel like I don't have a lot of a lot to add to this discussion. I've been sitting over here quietly. I don't know. I like I don't. I guess I'm just a consumer on this on this front. And I've gone into Zach and had this exact conversation where we're like, "Should we fix this?" And we're like, "Nah." <laughs> and I feel like that's that's the only thing I can kind of add to this, which is that it feels to me like a lot of times this stuff is, is designed such that, like, the point is that it's more an, even if you could get parts. It's way it's easier just to replace it. And takes more time. Like if I'm if I'm gonna pay Zach, Zach's worth you're what, a hundred fifty bucks an hour, like for just straight labor, as you should be. It doesn't take very long before just buying a new router railer. Yeah. Is a far better option for me and right like that that's that's where i am with that's
3: a that's a huge point as well because part of the right to repair movement is to make the parts uh the replacement parts and service parts available at an affordable and reasonable cost and often in the bike industry it does financially it makes more sense just to replace the whole thing than try to like you know in in terms of a rear derailleur then try to replace like the the rear derailleur cage for example which a lot of brands do offer replacement cages but financially you're like halfway there to a whole new derailleur and you're like well yeah and like, well know. i might as well have brand new everything yeah and then you know i can reuse some of the parts if i need be and you know like it's yeah so that's part of the issue here is that yeah financially it just really makes sense to not just go with the whole new part um and especially once you factor in labor so and i think there's there's room to to solve that i think you know making the parts more affordable and brands perhaps taking a bit more of a, um, a hit on the margin with them um would go a long way in this in this area and i know that ha- is not that feasible to say because you know these these companies and bike shops and the brands producing these parts are there to make a profit but you know we hate capitalism remember yeah <laughs> but also know, it's, yeah.
2: it's there's, sustainable there's another, t-shirt, yeah.
0: there's another t-shirt idea for you andy <laughs> <laughs> the nerds hate capitalism is ah, it yes. a red T-shirt? It's a red T-shirt, right? Oh, it might I mean, have to all. be with, with, with the big what, what is it? Big yellow yellow star? Is that is that it?
2: Guys, there's definitely a joke to be made here about hammer and sickle uh, <laughs> and myself, and I don't know what, I don't know what it is, but I, you know, when you can like smell a joke nearby, but you don't really know what it it's it's out there. Somebody tweet me the joke that I'm th- that I'm thinking of. <laughs>
0: And while we're on the subject of, of tweeting, uh, I know there are a lot of mechanics and shops out there who have those drawers that Zach was talking about. I would like to see what those drawers looks like, look like <laughs> because I remember what those drawers looked like when I was a shop mechanic, and it was always pretty funny. Um, but I would like to see what those drawers look like today. So go ahead and, and tweet that at me. I'm at Angry Asian, so I would like to see that. Anyway, all right, let's move on Uh Speaking of right to repair, we have a whole bunch of Ask a Mechanic questions from our Velo Club Slack channel. Um, And we've got quite a backlog still that we had to get through. So let's go ahead and dig into some of those. Our first Ask a Mechanic question comes from Christian Miller. I like this question. Does anyone have a good solution for tire storage? Christian's got a growing tire library of mountain and gravel rubber and it becomes a mess pretty quickly. I could just get a really big hanger rod and put them along that with the wasted space in the center, but I'm wondering if there are any applications I'm not thinking of. Uh, would zip tying them into bundles similar to the original packaging be an option, or will that be a pain in one or more ways? I mean, I would say folding them is
1: probably That's the most I efficient use of space, mm-hmm. but this makes me laugh because usually I'll, if I'm replacing tires for someone and the old tires are still decent, I'll save them just to make sure that they don't don't want them before I get rid of them. And most every customer is like, I would, used to say yes, but I've accumulated so many tires in my garage that I just recently threw them all away because I had this corner of old tires that I have been saving for five years and have never used a single spare tire. So I do not want another <laughs> spare tire saved.
0: Oh, man. Well, hopefully, hopefully there, there weren't any 26-inch ones in there because those are <laughs> as good as gold right now. Right. Anyway. I, for me, any, anytime I'm swapping tires around or if I, like, I end up with a lot of tires for test samples, that sort of thing, I've always just been folding them up and kind of tie them up with, with rubber band and that sort yeah. of thing. Because seems, that seems to me to always be the most, the most compact
3: way to store them. Do you fold or roll? I fold. fold. Definitely
1: fold. Not roll. Yeah.
3: You don't I do go the, the Hutchison
0: style roll. You do No, because I, I, I find that takes up like way more room. You do the Maxis fold. Yes. Yeah.
3: Okay. Definitely. It's something
0: similar to that anyway. It, it definitely seems to me to be the most, the most, I guess, space, space efficient way to do that. And then I can still see the tread and I, I fold it in a way so that I can still see the hot pad so I can, so I know exactly what the size and what the model is of the tire and everything. So that's what I do. So I think that that's personally what I would recommend. And then I just put them all in like a big Tupperware or a big, uh, like plastic bin sort of thing and then shove it on the work, work uh, Never to be seen again. Never to, perhaps never to be seen
3: again, or you know, to be eventually donated just, or something. Just in, to in give spiders light. a nice little habitat to hang out in.
0: Well, no, there's a lid on it. It's okay.
2: Okay. Question, question, question. How long Answer. did it take you to get rid of uh, all of the 26-inch mountain bike tires that you had folded up and stuck in a bin?
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I think what I ended up doing was when I finally decided that it was time to just purge all the 26-inch stuff, all of that went to uh, the local community cycles here in town, which... Of course, now I'm kicking myself because those were all, all pretty much, pretty much all tires that I actually owned. So I could have sold those now for quite a lot of money.
3: Yeah, they they they've retired young on um on on your collection of tires. They just sold them on <laughs> eBay, and they're now yeah. yeah they're now the ones driving around the nobles around uh, around. Boulder. Oh God, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Financed by took me,
2: 26 took me two tires. Moves. Took me two moves to get rid of my 26. Right, and and, and my girlfriend at the time that wife being like if you move those with us again i'm not coming with you
3: maybe
0: we'll go back to that
2: size but you the, the never know ar- the ironic
0: thing is now on that old cannondale that you bought you could have used some of those old 26 inch tires because you ended up having to buy some
2: i you know what
0: thank you james especially I'll if you have any cool this. ones like I old, will definitely remind you of this. Oh, something. Had, oh man. Uh, green Michelin. Oh had, my God. Well, Those so, are worth a fortune now. When I, I a I had so many.
2: <laughs> when I was a junior racer, I was sponsored by Maxis and did like Maxis prototype testing. And so I had tons. I had like old oriflams and a bunch of swamp things from mud races in Vermont and a whole bunch of old amazing stuff. And I just gave it all away. I think I gave it to, I gave it to the collegiate cycling team. So I went to a good place, but makes me sad still
1: i remember this is showing my my age as a junior racer i remember at the Norber races at the end of the season um i think it was at the time it was whatever giants factory team was called and they were sponsored by michelin at the end of the season they would have like this massive bucket of green michelin tires no brand, brand new for sale, just like getting rid of the oh, yeah. rest of the stuff for the year for like ten dollars a tire oh my god but like you could have spent $200 on tires and just saved them until
0: now and sold each one for like $150. Oh my God. <laughs> that, that Jet S was one of my favorite tires back in the day. It was so good for where I used to live. Anyway, we're, we're getting off track again as always. Fold them up. Fold them up. Yes, fold <laughs> them up, wrap them up with rubber bands. Done. Uh, next question. Speaking of tires, this one comes from Velo Club member Mike. Well, Mike, I don't know if it's getting by or getting be. I'm going to guess Mike getting be. Um,
2: just getting by over here. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Mike would know what our feeling is on minimum tire clearance between tires and chainstays, or I guess probably frame and fork as well, or uh, or I guess fork legs and seat stays as well, I would say. Um, what's our feeling on minimum clearance between the tires for a gravel slash winter bike? Uh, he's currently running 32 millimeter Panaracer Gravel King SKs, uh, but he wants something wider. He said there's enough space at the fork and seat stays to go up to around 40 to 42 but at the chain stays, there's only about 7 millimeters clearance on either side with those 32s. He's thinking a 38 for the rear, which would leave about 4 mils on either side. Is this too tight? He said he's happy to add electrical or helicopter tape to the chain stays to give some protection.
1: I mean, I would say it's just how comfortable you are with losing paint. Like, if it's dry, it's going to be fine. But the minute you ride through some wet conditions... It's really and, just mud. That's yeah, the biggest it's just going to stick to the tire and just rub away. I mean, I would... 4 millimeters sounds reasonable well like my gravel bike has less
0: clearance clearance than that but it's also aluminum and i don't care about the paint <laughs> <laughs> I, I i think the official industry standard is for more like for for road size tires i believe the industry standard is a minimum of four mils of clearance and then as you go up in size roughly gravelish side size um i believe the clearance goes up to six mil at, at the tightest point at any place and that's designed to account for you know debris or your wheel going out of true or something like that um so right now, I mean, a 38 seems like it would be okay with four mils. I mean, that's it's a little tight, but especially if you're willing to put some helicopter tape on the inside of there and, and are, you're willing to keep an eye on it. And if this is, um, you said it's for gravel in winter, I mean, as long as you're not dealing with too much mud, then you're probably okay. But I wouldn't go any bigger than that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would just keep an eye on on, like if you put tape in there, just keep an eye on the tape, whether it's dragging debris through or wheel flex or frame flex or whatever, like if it was starting to rub on that tape, then I would probably downsize before you start wearing through the tape and into
0: the carbon. Right, and and keep in mind that um, you may need to account for some variation in what the printed size is versus what the actual width is going to be. Um, I'm going to say, if you're running these things tubeless, um, I would say to start, just put a tube in there, just in the event that this tire ends up being too big for you to run. And even then, before you really decide if it's safe to run, make sure you inflate it to whatever you think is going to be and let it sit for one or two days to kind of like stretch out and whatever it settle into its final size. And then you can decide if it's actually going to fit in your frame.
3: Yeah, the uh, advice I heard from uh, one of the employees of Maxis is actually uh, pump up, this is uh, in relation to mountain bike tires, but yeah, pump up your mountain bike tires to the maximum pressure listed on the sidewall and let it be that way for 24 hours. And then that'll let the tire stretch to its basic, you know, it'll, it'll basically stretch to its end end point. Um, and that, you know, immediately you'll have the most voluminous tire that way. Right. Okay. Well, Mike, hopefully
0: that answers your question. Let's move on to the next one. Uh, this one comes from James Wynn. Uh, I feel like this is one that pops up every now and then James would like to know how much steer tube is okay to have above the stem. On a carbon fork. I've heard people say that too much can be a problem, but I've also heard that's bunk. So this is interesting. This is not this is not how much steer tube is okay to have or how much how many headset spacers is okay to have in your frame. He wants to know how much how much steer tube is okay to have above the stem. And it sounds like my guess is that he is setting up a new bike or wants to leave a little bit of wiggle room or maybe wants to leave a little bit extra in case he's gonna sell the bike later down the road. Um, Zach, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, I would say first refer to
1: the component whether the fork or the bike manufacturers specs but i mean like we were talking about previously that could be an issue finding the actual tech docs um but most companies say 40 millispacers um in addition to the stem is the max and usually they don't specify whether that's on top or on bottom um so i'd say if it's a new bike and you're just kind of playing around with position then i would say go for it with having all the spacers on top if you're trying to slam it or whatever the only downside with that is the compression plug um Basically, where it supports the steer is above above the stem at that point and not really supporting the, the clamping forces from the stem.
0: Right, because I feel like – I can't remember if we've – I think we've talked a fair bit about a compression plugs before, but unfortunately, a lot of compression plugs that are out on the market right now are bad. They're just not very good at all. They're not, they're not very – they don't support a lot of the steer tube. Um, they, uh, even, they're not very long. Um, even if they are kind of long or if they are a decent length, they don't necessarily – provide full surface area support to the inside of this tube either so whichever way you decide to go on this james i would say to you'll you'll very likely have to find a longer compression plug if you're going to be running a fair bit of spacer above the stem Um, find a a long compression plug that the bottom of it goes past the bottom of the stem
1: yeah i mean because i if you have a really short compression plug and this is you have a bunch of spacers on top i mean you can easily see like the, the upper bolt that is being supported by the compression plug, the gap between the two sides of the stem is much farther apart than the one, the, like the lower bolt clamping bolts are going to pinch the stem a lot more because it is actually compressing the steer tube of the fork. Mm.
3: Yeah, it would probably also depend on the brand and manufacturer of fork as well because some forks are like, you know, designed to not necessarily need the compression plug to resist compression, whereas, you know, a lot of the new ones at least are very light and need the extra support so there's no real like you know single answer for, applied to so everything here yeah i would say like worst case if
1: it's questionable then i would just reach out to the manufacturer if you can't find a tech doc and see what what they recommend is is okay
0: uh next question this one comes from john Broton. um john's son's mountain bike came with uh caged headset bearings and a plastic seal that his son managed to mangle when changing the spacers on the stem. Uh, he is used to sealed cartridge bearings on his head, on his headsets. Can this be swapped over to a cartridge bearing setup? Uh, he said he thinks it's a zero stack 56 40, which seems to be a standard that he can find in FSA and a number of other brands. Um, yes, it actually should be pretty straightforward to be able to find a, a replacement headset. If you want to go with uh, a cartridge bearing setup, um, Depending on the headset, however, and we were just talking about kind of the whole right to repair small parts, that sort of thing. What might be worthwhile doing if you are not interested in spending any more money than you really have to, um, you might want to bring that bearing seal into a local shop that potentially deals in that brand and just see if they have one laying around because it might be possible. Um, and then as far as those caged bearings go, I've, I I know when I was a shop mechanic, I, what I always liked to do when overhauling a headset was, um, I basically just threw the cage bearings away and I used the same ball bearing diameter and just packed them in losing the cup. And too, like, this is more back in the day, but like you would have a, let's say a tackle box or
1: a a drawer full of every different size cage bearings for, for headsets and hubs or whatever. And you just put the same one in, but I would, for me, for longevity of this, I would replace this bearing with the similar, the same size cartridge bearing that's actually sealed properly.
3: Yep. So, And that and that's the question. James, you mentioned you can replace the headset, but um, Zach, you're saying you can actually drop a cartridge bearing into the existing headset? I mean, it
1: depends. I would say it depends on the frame. If it's like an external cup headset that's pressed in, probably not. You probably just need to get an entire new headset, but it sounds like it's a zero stack like an integrated bearing. A lot of cheaper headsets on bikes um, it's the same dimensions and sizes and everything as a normal like high quality internal headset bearing but it's, yeah, it just like falls apart and there's bearings inside
0: mm, interesting um either way john my, i suspect that what you may have to do here is I, I think you may have to find a dealer who who works with that brand of mountain bike and ideally find one that's been around for a while with a mechanic who's been around for a while uh, and see what they recommend uh, as far as what they can find for parts for that but either way if you do end up having to replace that headset um zero stack 56 is a pretty common size um so you should be able to, you should be able to get that fairly easily. And for headsets, you don't have to replace the upper and the lower. You can replace just the lower assembly if you want to save a little bit of money. Next question comes from Ted Hock. He's got a grease question for ball bearing and hub ball bearings. What is the current thinking on, on Phil Wood waterproof grease? He's, he's used it for years, especially because they have a grease gun tube. And you wonder if he should switch when servicing his Chris King bottom bracket and wheels. Hmm, interesting. Well, I went ahead and reached out to Chris King directly on this. Um, not the actual man Chris King. I was talking to JC Zip at, at Chris King. Um, but Jay was saying that um while he is a big fan of Phil Wood Grease for a lot of different reasons, uh Chris King does have their own custom formulated bearing grease now. Uh, apparently it's been out for a couple of years and he was saying that one particular issue that they run into sometimes is that uh you don't want to run a grease that's too thick in their bearings. Phil the Wood stuff is pretty thick. It's very thick. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's like a it's like a polyurea polyurea based or something like that. It's 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 awfully thick stuff. It also smells kind of funny. <laughs> um, But uh, Jay was saying uh, some of the products that he's used in the past worked very well, and some uh, and some well enough that kind of meant more cleaning and servicing. He said in the end they needed a bearing grease that is not super thick. It doesn't get easily contaminated and grimy. Um, even though their bearings have a very real bearing seal and serviceable. Uh, apparently this bearing the grease that they have uh, it's Got it. it has a tungsten disulfide nano nanoparticle uh, addition to it. Uh, Coat's parts tends to linger even after the grease has worn away or is slightly contaminated. He said that it still means that it should be serviced and greased uh, periodically, um, but he said all of the crisking bearings that they have now get that silver grease. S- steel bearings get more of it, and ceramic bearings get less of it, but either way, they have them in a tub or a small squeeze bottle for bearing service applications that's what they recommend.
3: Yeah. Um- more broadly speaking, the the fillwood grease or any thick waterproof grease, I'd say, is fine for headset bearings because you know they're low, um, low speed bearings. But any high speed bearings, bottom bracket hubs, you'd you'd be basically just adding a lot of uh wasted energy into your bike by adding a thick waterproof grease into those bearings.
1: Yeah, I mean, it depends. to like where you live, and I mean, obviously, like what hubs you have. If the Chris King maybe don't, but if you live somewhere, let's say England or whatever, where it rains a ton then yeah put the thickest grease in there that's going to stay forever um but yeah there's other bearing greases that are much thinner like you can buy the ceramic speed grease aftermarket and that's super fast
0: it's like still lasts pretty long Uh, that's a last question we have for the day it's another bearing question this one comes from steve galbraith steve has supposedly set the bearings correctly in his shimano a600 single-sided spd pedals but he says one of them is too spinny he couldn't find any replacement seals that might slow the spin. Do we have any pro tips? Which ones are the A600? The A600s are sort of the uh, the single-sided SPDs.
1: Oh, the ones that don't actually hang because they're not offset
0: weight? Well, no, the A600s were better. The the newer ones are worse. Although, actually, wait, no. The A600s might be like this. Uh, It might be those. They're a pedal. Either way. Either way. (laughs) Uh, So I guess one question I have is... How you know that you have them both set correctly, um, that is one trick as well, because those, those do use a cup and cone sort of setup that's adjustable, um, and it is a little bit tricky to make sure that they're set perfectly. Um, but if one of them is too spinny, that kind of leads me to believe that they have different amounts of grease inside of them.
1: Yeah, that's what my... If, if yeah. it's not too loose, then I would think there's
0: probably just add some grease to
3: it. Yeah. You can add fillwood grease to it if you want it less you skinny. Could. You could. <laughs> then it would I mean, not... What, yeah. what I have
0: always <laughs> done with those pedals whenever I overhaul them is once I know that the bearing is adjusted the way that I want it to, I I wouldn't say I fill the cavity in the pedal with grease, but I, I certainly put a fair bit in there. And then when you push the whole bearing cartridge in it'll automatically push out any extra grease that doesn't need to be in there or doesn't have room to be in so there. So have to be careful with that because sometimes it will also push the seal up. Yeah. That's true. But not, not on the Shimano ones. That doesn't tend to happen though. Yeah. It does it with does. Like
3: the higher end pedals especially. Like XTR. Yeah.
0: Oh, but, but not, on, not on these. On the, the A600s, they, they were pretty stout.
3: Yeah.
0: Um, Load them up. So I, I, would, I would just put, put a little bit more grease in there. And that should, my guess is that would kind of take care of that spinniness. Um, But you could also just use more grease or you you also could use, just use a heavier grease like Dave was recommending. Yeah. I mean, I just also make sure that there isn't play in the bearings. Yeah. But like I said, I mean, he, he thinks he has the bearing set correctly, but you know, we're going to, we're going to just run with that. All right. Well, I think that'll take care of our asking mechanics segment of this show, which means that we're done with this week's show. Thanks as always for listening. If you haven't already subscribed to the show, please do so on whatever you use to get your podcasts. If you're on iTunes, please leave us a rating or review uh, because that is always very helpful. And by all means, please tell your buddies about Nerd Alert because it's always good to have more people listening. So with that, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Cheers. All right.